Welcome to the Derek Loudermilk Show. Today's guest is Dr. Loretta Bruning. Loretta Bruning is back on the podcast today. She's a best-selling author and founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. We're going to be having a conversation about her latest book, Status Games, Why We Play and How We Stop, and in particular, the brain chemical, the neurotransmitter serotonin, which is one of the most complex to understand, and how this makes us act as mammals, as social creatures. We're going to learn why serotonin makes us always comparing ourselves with other people and trying to put ourselves in a one-up position by putting people in a one-down position. And Loretta is going to teach us some techniques to put ourselves in the one-up position without having to do this to anyone else. This is also going to explain a lot. It's going to explain to you what is going on in the world in terms of how other groups are characterized, you know, the political strategy of concentrating people against a certain group to accumulate power. And in general, Loretta is really good about teaching you how to think like a scientist, to think like an animal behaviorist or an evolutionary biologist, to understand that we're not just humans and social creatures and conscious beings, but we're also social mammal creatures, and we have very particular brain chemistry which influences our behavior. Not to mention, Loretta is just really interesting. She's widely traveled. She's an academic rebel, and our conversation, conversation, boy, sure, sure, messing up a bunch today. Our conversation is going to take us, uh, you know, to applying animal behavior theories to parenting, how to build grit, uh, the role of testosterone and cortisol, and so many more. So, without further ado, here is Loretta Bruning. Loretta Bruning, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. And I was looking up the first time you were on the show was uh, October 18th, 2015, six years ago. So would love to, in, in light of what we're going to be talking about today, your, your new book, Status Games, uh, would love to just sort of hear about that intervening period, what, what you've been up to, what you've been thinking about, um, catch, catch us up a little bit. Sure. Well, that was an exciting time for me because I think you had discovered my original self-published book and then it got a commercial publisher. And since then, I've had quite a number of um, commercial books published. So frankly, after writing my whole life and getting no readers at all, it really is since then that I've gotten a lot of readers. So um, <laughs> yeah, I could never have predicted it at that moment. Well, congrats. That's, that's amazing. Thanks. And uh, one other thing I should say is that um, at the time we spoke, you were in Ubud in Bali. And I have such a strong connection to that place because it's one place where you can be with monkeys like directly, which is so rare, it's usually not allowed. And so uh, I had been there um, and interacted with the monkeys for like about 60 seconds or something because of, frankly, I was there with my ex-husband. <laughs> and so I always longed to go back. And so I, I always imagine you with monkeys. So I which is got, what my books were about. 
<laughs> I got into uh, we we were at war with the monkeys. Uh, they started coming into our co-working space and we got slingshots and they kept trying to steal the food from the cafe and they would slide down off the roof and like do these raids into our cafe and so the staff the the Balinese were defending the cafe and I was like well I'm never going to get a chance to shoot a monkey with a slingshot again so I might as well do it and it's just very gratifying to to fight against a band of uh, monkeys. Well, well, that's amazing. Because so first, what, what most of my work is about is how we've been sold this idea that animals are peaceful and cooperative, which is so not true. And anyone who has interaction with wild animals knows that, but hardly anyone does anymore. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, so few people do what you just did, which is acknowledge the truth of that impulse to fight back. <laughs> That's the whole point of the book. <laughs> well, great. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about status games. And I'm, I'm curious what uh, made you want to write it. So my other books are about a, a great number of happy chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. But this book is only about serotonin. And I wanted to have a whole book on that because it's really the hardest to make sense of and the hardest urge to gratify in our world. And this gave me the opportunity to really tell the whole story in a convincing way about the one-up impulse that every mammals have and our inner mammal has and then how we can uh, accept it and manage. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about because uh, you have these these uh, fun little a- anecdotes, stories about historical figures, and how uh, and and this seems this actually comes up. Uh, you talk about how maybe their life isn't as idealized as maybe we thought, but it also seems like there are other places that you're talking about that aren't as idealized as we thought, and in you know, just talking about the animals and conflict. So yeah, maybe, maybe do you have a favorite uh, historical figure that, uh, um, that you discovered along the way that you'd like to share? Sure. Well, um, so yeah, so the idea of the book is that it's so hard for us to acknowledge that we have this one-up impulse and we're always blaming it on other people. So I have to give a lot of examples of how natural and normal and pervasive this is. So people don't just think it's our society or it's these enemies we have. Uh, So animals have always been this way, humans have always been this way, but I picked out a few historical figures to explain how they have had frustrating status games in their life, despite their conscious intentions. And when we think about famous historical figures, we often think they must have been happy because they were successful. Uh, But when you look deeply, you find that their lives were often miserable and for reasons like ever so weirdly similar to our own lives. And the pandemic gave me the opportunity to really research these few historical figures. So I just put one little historical story in each chapter. And um, I start with Charles Darwin because um, he gave me the evolutionary origins of our brain. And then I go into Jane Austen because she's so status conscious. (laughs) 
and that overcomes that idea that it's all men that are that way. But I couldn't wait to focus on Sigmund Freud. So I'm really interested in Sigmund Freud because he introduced the idea of the unconscious and yet he was wrong about so many things and it helps us understand how an idea is introduced in history and the first person to talk about it doesn't get it all right. You know, humans have always sort of been aware of the unconscious and why do we have this unconscious? Academics often deny their own unconscious and they like to believe that whatever their higher philosophical statements to themselves are, which I call your internal public relations agency, they like to believe that that's their real truth. So um, I had Sigmund Freud assigned to me in school many decades ago, and I read a lot of his stuff and thought it was wrong. So that's why it took me many years to see, well, yeah, even though he was wrong about some things, he really got us to accept that we all have an unconscious and look for its origins. And another thing that got me excited about Sigmund Freud was um, you could actually visit his home. So whenever I travel, I look for the homes of famous historical figures that are open to the public. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe that not only is Sigmund Freud's actual home open, it was an apartment in downtown Vienna, but his bathroom is open. And for people who had to read about him, he wrote about the anal retention theory. And so you could see like the bathroom where this all started. And what is, so- Sorry, what is the anal retentive theory? Oh, oh the anal retention theory. Um, so is- um, May I use the word constipation on your show? Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so people who hold back the natural impulse to go and you hold it back with a real physiological response. And we're often studying today how these deeper physiological responses are connected to emotions. So you could see like if you're like resisting your parents and people have different ways of resisting. And, you know, at the time, uh, disposable diapers hadn't been invented. And one way to resist, like you were, kids were pressured to toilet train at a young age. Mm -hmm. And so withholding that would be a way of resisting parental control. So I think that was sort of the idea and you don't have to just apply it to constipation but all forms of your anger and resistance being locked into your muscles without knowing it yeah okay really interesting and uh my so my wife used to do colon hydrotherapy uh helping helping people get stuck poop out of out of their colons and she told me all these stories about how people's uh, they would just, you know, cry for hours afterwards and it would like, they would shake and they would release all these pent up emotions and their life would change after finally having a good poop for the first time in decades. And it just blew me away. But now, you know, it's, it all, it's all piecing together for me. Like how, of course that's possible. Um, wow. connected. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you know about the Peter Levine theory about shaking. Um, so this is the idea that when animals have a threat and they run from the threat, 
and then they release the thread by shaking. And humans try not to shake. We try to hold back our feelings of weakness. We try to hold it together all the time. And that actually causes more stress in the long run. So we need to learn how to let go of it and shake. So that's, she found another path to it where other people have had other paths to it, but that's amazing. That's great. Yeah. Interesting. So that's like the body keeps the score type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, sorry, to back to Freud. Yeah, so back to Freud. So after visiting his home on a trip to Vienna that I made for another reason, I read a biography of him and I was fascinated by it. Then I read another biography with it. So by the time the lockdown started, I'd read about three biographies of him. Well, I read 10 more because I had so much time. So I'm really proud of the status games of Sigmund Freud part of the book. Yeah, excellent. Wow. And I have read biography, you know, I would probably stop at one for, for most people. Um, what's it like reading that many biographies? Did you feel like you knew it? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, so I have to tell you my bias. So I spent most of my life in academia, and I really hate academics. <laughs> so I feel like they're always trying to put a spin on things. So people have warred for years about Sigmund Freud, even while he was alive. And so each person who writes a biography of him is putting a spin on it um, to support their own view of things. And Anna Freud, his daughter, was chief among this because her obvious spin was to make her father look good and to cover up the bad stuff. And just so you know, what makes this all juicy is um, as soon as he died, people started gathering letters that he had written and other things, interviewing people he knew. And some of that stuff got locked up for a hundred years. Somebody gathered it and it's at the Library of Congress now and it can't be released for a hundred years. But little bit is released gradually all the time. So that's how there's always new information about what was really going on. And, and that's how. But my, my take was about what happened in his childhood, because that's my take on everything, is the um, neural pathways that control our emotions are developed in childhood. And we all just go around repeating our old impulses. So I needed to know about his childhood. And he did not want to reveal anything about it. So that's why I was digging so hard. Mm. What did you uncover about his childhood that's relevant to this book? Well, he was idealizing his parents. And then a lot of the people who wrote about him didn't want to say anything bad about his family. Um, and so that's why it took a lot of digging. And so you could imagine, needless to say, that there was a lot of dirt about his parents. So his father didn't really work, or possibly he worked illegally. Probably he worked illegally and was able to cover it up, but he has no known employment. So Sigmund Freud grew up in extreme poverty. So that's one part of it. His mother was absolutely controlling but she called him her golden boy. So we when I talk about status games, he was always in the one-up position. So because his mother put him there. So 
he grew up with this weird, like I'm always one up, but then I'm really one down because I'm a slave to my mother, which ironically, Napoleon was the same situation. Hmm. But the part that made it even weirder is um, uh, Sigmund Freud's mother was a young bride and Sigmund Freud's father was old and he already had another family. So Sigmund uh, and possibly one of one of the father's sons was as old as the mother and she may have had an affair with him and Sigmund Freud may have actually even come from that. So you know how Sigmund Freud talks about your attachment to your mother and your hatred of your father. It was like, whoa, there's like more going on there. <laughs> so it's possible he was projecting a lot of uh, his experience when he was doing talk therapy with people. Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about serotonin and um, its its role here. And uh, I'm kind of interested in uh, how long it lasts uh, you know, what it's for. Could you talk a little bit about the, the chemical itself? Sure. So what I learned from studying monkeys was that um, a monkey gets a little bit of release of serotonin when it gains the one-up position. It's always looking for this, the one-up position because if it's in the one-down position, it gets bitten when it reaches for a piece of food or mating opportunity near a stronger individual. And so it will starve to death and never get mating opportunity if it's always one down. So it has to find a one, at, one down position and it's motivated to avoid getting bitten, but then the brain rewards you with the good feeling of serotonin when you find the one up position. And the way you find that it's not aggression, but it's looking around, comparing yourself to others and saying, oh, I'm, I'm smaller than him. I better pull back. Oh, I'm bigger than him. I got it going on. I'm going to just let go and do what I want. So that's the good feeling of serotonin that we're always looking for. And it only lasts for a short time because its job is not to make you go around feeling like a big shot all the time, because then you'd get into conflict with bigger monkeys and you would not survive. So it's only motivated it's only designed to motivate you in that one moment when it's appropriate for you to reach. And do you have a sense of like what it feels like when we get a surge of serotonin? Like for you, what does it feel like? Sure. Well, I've come up with a list of 30 synonyms for it because we tend to use bad words for it when someone else asserts themselves and we use good words for it when we assert <laughs> ourselves. So self-assertion would be one word for it, but that's a very um, antiseptic, academic, unemotional word that we use to make it sound nice. Uh, pride would be a word. Uh, we have a good connotation for pride and then we have a bad connotation. Some people use pride as a bad thing, but I think pride is closest to the emotion. Self-confidence would be when I have it myself, I feel confident. I feel like I got it going on. But if it's someone I don't like, I could call it ego or even manipulativeness or self-important or self-aggrandizing. But again, when I look for it myself, I could say 
It's wanting recognition, wanting to be special. So it's natural to want to be special. And yet I live in a world of 7 billion other people who want to be special. And that's the conundrum of life. There's, uh, there's a lot of directions to go here, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like um, when we used to have smaller groups, you could sort of see where you fit in a hierarchy if there was a small tribe and you'd be like, oh, I'm number two or whatever. But if you're comparing uh, against millions or billions, it's nearly impossible and you get into this exercise that's fruitless. Um, and yet we're still wired to do it. So it's, uh, there's always someone who's, you could find someone who's one up on you if you looked for it. Uh, you could also find someone who's one down on you when you look for it. Um, <clears throat> could you talk a little bit about you know, what, it, what it means since we're so interconnected now uh, versus small units? Sure. Well, um, first, I want to say that small units have been idealized by academics. I think small units are were quite frustrating, which is why we don't live in small units, despite the way we're idealizing them. You want to, you, if you'd rather be in a tribe, go for it. Nobody's stopping you. But we're choosing to escape tribes because we don't like the limitation of living with a group of people who says, you rank at number 10. We're like, heck with that. I'm going to take a, I'm going to get on a bus and go to another town where I could be number nine. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. That's the sort of the incentive we all live with. And um, there's a certain idealization. You're not allowed to say anything bad about tribal people in the anthropological world. You'll be called bad names, but they lived with the frustration so when they were young, they were very much controlled by their elders and they were not allowed, they had to submit all the time. They were not allowed to take any initiatives, but they knew that if they lived long enough and risked their life um, killing mammoths and fighting neighboring tribes, that they would rise in the hierarchy. And that's how it works in the animal world, um, that it's partly aging if you survive and partly acts of valor and taking initiative and and alpha monkeys often die young none of mm -hmm. us want to die young we want absolute safety but we still want recognition as being heroic so this is a conundrum that we create in our own minds and that's the whole point of my work is to understand how we're creating it in our own minds and i i acknowledge what you're saying that we're also creating it digitally but we're choosing to do that in our own minds. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, and I realize I'm bouncing around here, but I also have this open loop in my mind about the chemical itself, uh, partly because uh, I'm curious about SSRIs and depression and um, just, just wondering, because that's a serotonin related uh, prescription and I know there's a lot of depression uh, from the pandemic, it's been going up, uh, so I've heard. So what's up with that? Sure, thank you. Yeah, such a huge topic. So first, I should acknowledge that what I'm saying about serotonin is not spoken of at all in the medical world, which uses what are the psychology world. I call it the disease model, which suggests that the state of nature is happy all the time. And if you're not happy all the time, you must have a disease and they can fix it for you. So I do not agree with this perspective. 
and I should explain the source of my information. So in the 1980s, there was research on serotonin in monkeys that discovered what I was saying about how serotonin is linked to the one-up position. But before that, there was a whole century of research on competitiveness in animals and everyone sort of accepted that mammal groups had social hierarchies. So it was not a big leap from there to see how serotonin was the reward and cortisol was the, um, the pain. So rewards and pain are what motivates us to either seek status or withdraw from the pursuit of status when it's not safe. So the, the research that I'm talking about was done at UCLA Med School and the National Institute for Mental Health in Maryland. This disappeared. So I have a feeling it was too hot to handle, didn't fit with the preconceptions of academia, which are that the state of nature is happy all the time and capitalism is the cause of all of your unhappiness. So I recently wrote a Substack series on this subject because I I don't normally incorporate that in my work, the political side of it. So um, uh, when SSRIs became popular, um, no one talked about the deeper roots of this, but in order to connect in the deeper roots, the way I explain it is if you perceive yourself as the little monkey who never gets the banana because you're surrounded by bigger monkeys who are always grabbing your bananas, then you will not stimulate your own serotonin and you will wish you had that good feeling. And so you will buy into this disease model that the healthcare system can give it to you. Uh, but we were not meant to have that feeling every minute, but you have the, they give you the illusion that other people are having the feeling every minute and who wouldn't want that feeling every minute. Now, my book, you may think, well, that's because the world is so unfair. I should be a big monkey having bananas all the time. Uh, so you may have the illusion that someone else is a big monkey who just grabs for bananas and mating opportunity whenever they want and they get all the serotonin and therefore it's social injustice that I don't have it. And my book explains why that is not reality. So I may continue. Um, I always use the example, let's say you're a young actor and you are not getting any parts and you think, oh, if I could only get a great part, I'll be happy forever. And so finally you get a great part and you get your serotonin, but it's soon gone because its job is to keep motivating you not to just flow all the time. So you have this big role, but then you look at all these other movies that they're making without you and all of these other actors that are getting more press than you're getting. So you think, oh, if only I got an Academy Award, then I would be happy forever. So you struggle and struggle and finally you get this Academy Award and now you have your great moment of one-uphood. But then, are you happy every minute? No, because you see other actors, younger, getting more press than you and you only worry about losing your one-up position rather than just feeling good about it. So no matter what power anyone has, 
They're only worried about losing it to a social rival rather than just sitting on their throne and enjoying it. Mm -hmm. uh, so let me let me run this uh, thought that's coming up from Bayou about um, <clears throat> serotonin. So I, I used to, uh, when I was working my way to being a professional cyclist, uh, working my way up, I love the challenge of like progressing through the ranks and winning some races and then you you move up and you, all of a sudden you're on the at the bottom again <clears throat> um and then i i came back to bike racing and it's different it's um there are other younger people who are working their way ups now and i um have to find different different parts of it to enjoy like uh more strategic parts or, or something like that um is it is that serotonin related, that, that difference in experience? Um, yes and no. So it's, um, this is exactly the conclusion of the book is that you have to find creative ways to give yourself the one-up feeling. You can't wait for the world to give it to you. Because if you do, either you'd be in that endless pursuit of the fast lane, which if you did that in cycling or in any other realm of life forever, you're gonna wear yourself out. Or but take, if, take drugs. <laughs> and and also wear yourself out right, right. um but if you are in the slow lane where you just give up and you say oh i'm never going to get anything why bother trying then you don't get any serotonin at all so the idea of the book is to be in the middle lane so that's one side of it but what your solution was may also possibly be that you found, in addition to being getting that middle lane serotonin, is that you found ways of getting dopamine and oxytocin from your cycling. So the oxytocin part would be the camaraderie, and the dopamine part would be the um, the expectation of a reward, which many people use the term personal best, like maybe you would create challenges for yourself. And it's also variety. Like if you did cycling in a new place, that that stimulates your dopamine. So rather than being the best at it, you're enjoying it in a new way. Gotcha. So my rewards are coming in the form of different neurochemicals, perhaps. Okay, interesting. Um, you seem to have the, the ability in academia or in other cases to see either through a consensus or see through people's bullshit or whatever it may be. Why, why do you think you have that ability not to conform? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so first, um, I, um, I taught for 20, 25 years and I took early retirement at 53. So I had the freedom to not conform at 53, partly thanks to my husband who was making a living and I didn't have the financial pressure. Uh, when I say I, I took early retirement, but when you retire after 20, I had 20 years in one place that I only got 20% of my salary, but I already owned my house. So between that and my husband, I had that freedom. Uh, but for the 25 years I was teaching, uh, I'm ashamed to say that I went along with a lot of bullshit that I didn't agree with. Um, and uh, I'm, the reason I'm ashamed is because I had tenure, so I couldn't even be fired. And yet I went along with the bullshit just out of that 
normal human fear of, of being too out of step. And yet I did, as you said, I did see through it. I didn't agree. I didn't believe it. And so I often ask myself why. And uh, there's a couple of reasons. So one is that in academia, you often have a major and you build um, social herd, social consensus around that. That's the oxytocin piece. And then you also have a hierarchy. So in order to rise in the hierarchy, you have to buy into the paradigm of whatever your group is and please the alpha, the leader of that group. And because, so I never did that. So I managed to get my degrees without doing that for a couple of reasons. One reason was because I, um, I had interdisciplinary majors. So I was never really forced into one um, a cohort, one uh, thought group. And the other reason is I grew up in, in quite a, an Asperger sort of way um, where I, I, I grew up in a, in a really bad place where I never learned to trust or rely on others and did my own thing. And because of that, I think that my schoolwork was good because I didn't waste time like hanging out with other people and asking them what they thought would be <laughs> on the test. I just did my work. And so I think that in, in a way, my work was good enough that I, I never even learned about the whole sucking up route to acad of academia. Like I was so Asperger's that I didn't even really get that that was a way of life, you know? Yeah, I, you know, I was, um, I have my master's in, in virology and I started to realize at that time that there was these social forces uh, governing things and, and it uh, seems to make science very entrenched and more like a religion in some ways uh, and, and hard to bring new ideas. Um, and, you know, I would say a, an example of that recently perhaps was the lab leak hypothesis. You know, you couldn't talk about it for a long time and then all of a sudden it became okay to talk about it. Uh, perhaps there's a role also of, you know, propaganda or whatever in there. But um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting like how, how these social, social alliances sort of hold on to um, their ideas in science when you would think science is supposed to be about, let's just have a discussion about the various hypotheses and look at the data and all that stuff. But it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's torture. Uh, there's a, a lot of books about this. Um, the one that I just read that I really liked, it's called Science Fictions, it's fictions with an S. And then um, the friend gave me, I haven't read yet, it's called Fraud in the Lab. And then there's another one by Nicholas Wade, called oh i forgot like um fraud science fraud fraud, fraud mm, oh it's called betrayers of truth mm. and then the subtitle has the word fraud and i was interested in nicholas wade because he's an evolutionary biologist uh, but i do not know about the lab leak hypothesis so i'm gonna look at that oh uh it's it's um just i mean i think probably most listeners would have heard it but it's a uh, the original theory about the pandemic origins was natural evolution, bat jumping to, or whatever animal jumping in the wet markets. 
uh, versus an, another plausible hypothesis is that the virus was created and it leaked from, from a oh. lab. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I know about that. I thought someone then generalized this as a hypothesis about science, but you're talking about that specific example. Okay. Well, yeah, and it was so uh, it was so interesting because right. as a virologist, one thing I did was look at the genetic sequence to try to see, does it make sense that the sequence is like a slow it's progression of evolution, or is there like a big chunk of a new thing, like a new... Uh, and it's kind of hard to tell from the literature, but so, so meaning like it could have been, it could have been either. Um, but it, oh, it just, yeah, what you're saying was first, you couldn't say that. And then all of a sudden it was yeah. okay to say it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So one um, important aspect of this that I write about in all my books, mammals bond around common enemies. So for example, when you have a group of baboons, they would rather disperse because it's easier to find food, but they stick together when they smell a predator because then it can eat their children. And so uh, baboons cannot uh, win a contest with a lion individually. So that's why they stick together. And so they're always making the decision in each moment, should I disperse or should I go back to the herd? And we are all doing that. And we would rather disperse. And it's only the perception of a common enemy that gets us to unite. So anyone who wants power, anyone who wants a group, focuses everyone on the common enemy. And so um, in, in academia, in science, you hear a lot of talk about common enemies. And that gets everyone in the group to to bond, and that means you have to agree with whatever the alpha tells you is the correct interpretation. If you don't go along with that, you are out of the group, and now you are the enemy. And who wants to do that? You still have mm. student loans from your PhD program. So I feel like this is ripe. I mean, po politicians have used this since they figured it out, but it's ripe to manipulate large groups of people into uh i mean the, the first example obviously would would be nazi germany you know mobilizing one portion of their population against another um but it's happened throughout history uh and it's happening now you know uh, I, I feel like i mean with with uh one of one of trump's campaign things was like the keep the other people out but all politicians are using this uh let's you know find an enemy and mobilize together but i have this dream that we we don't need uh to have this ridiculous like polarized us versus them i'm in and you're out do you do you see a, a world or a way where we can move past having an us versus them uh situation you know I have to tell you, it's so deeply ingrained that I don't see it right now, except for, I have to say, my husband is really into science fiction. Uh, he's a physicist and um, he has like very few of the pleasures of ordinary mortals, let's say, um, in terms of like eating pizza and binge watching, <laughs> but <laughs> so the only, only exception is science fiction. And I'm convinced that science fiction is 
we're all joined together against um, you know space space creatures that that's what gets people together and I also think that um, climate change is being used as this you know let's all get together and fight climate change mm-hmm. and as much as I think there's a lot of falsehood and misrepresentation being used there um, there is less war today than there ever has been in human history and most people don't realize that and so there's been a tremendous accomplishment and um even in one way is that really can i can i check do we know is that really true because we've been at war uh my whole life like there's been a war going on ever since i was born so i think that the press is using that to manipulate you to be mad at the government because that's the us versus them that whoever is in power is the bad guy and that's how they lure you into their group so that they can rise in power and undermine anyone who has power. But in what I explain in the book is in early human times from, you know, cavemen to all, all throughout history, people were at war almost constantly, like so much war that you couldn't leave your village without getting killed. So you only left your village with like a big armed group. Um, You never just like I can right now I could take a plane to Calcutta and walk and walk through the street with millions of strangers in safety. Like whereas in the past, you couldn't even leave your village without, you know, uh, and and chimps, you know, if any group of the of the neighboring chimps goes too near the close to the border between them, they kill it. So um, when explorers uh, a couple of centuries ago went into new territories, the people they encountered were at war with their neighbors constantly. And this has all been covered up by anthropologists who have tried to create the illusion that people were peaceful and our society is the cause of war. But the fact is that The wars that we've had have been so sort of minuscule as a percentage of people involved, whereas in the past, like every place was at war. Like, here's a simple way to test it. Like, go on a vacation anywhere you go and like read the history of that country. And you may only know the wars that you studied in school, but then you're like, oh, they had that war and then they had that war and then they had that war. And again, a lot of the coverage of this is biased, but if you start looking for yourself, you'll find that everybody was at war with everybody all the time. Yeah, I remember I was reading about the the fall of the the Roman Republic, I believe, um, the the calm before the fall or something like that. Uh, But it was like seasonal, they would be at war. There was like a tribe that came through because of the seasons in Europe, and they would just like fight them as they moved past. You know, so it's like, oh, it's fall, time to fight this, these marauding hordes. So, yeah, I, I see what you mean. I, I'm wondering, you mentioned, uh, so you mentioned science fiction. I thought you were going to say something a little different. Uh, and there's in Tibetan Buddhism, there's uh, several hundred thousand cases of people leaving their bodies and becoming called the rainbow body or the light body where they have the same consciousness and can still interact theoretically with people, but they're not bound to physical body. Is that, would that be the 
only case when you could sort of move past is it the is it the brain structure and serotonin itself that's like binding us to this um i see what you're saying um I try to avoid this kind of metaphysical religious thing because everyone has a right to their own opinion. I don't wanna upset people too much, um, but I must say that there's a lot of moral superiority is the modern way. Like if you watch old movies, like people wanted to be stronger. So they like, you know, man had to have more muscles and a woman had to have more babies. So we don't do that anymore and that's good but we're using moral superiority instead. So many people are engaged in a quest for moral superiority, which involves putting down the ethics of others so you could be morally superior to them. Uh, my, I guess my, my thought was, because you, you brought up science fiction, uh, if perhaps in there they were talking about a civilization that had moved past the us versus them, perhaps because of some evolution of being able to have their consciousness uh, separated in some way from their biological needs. Okay, so um, I am quite suspicious of talk about utopian groups because I've read so much about how they go wrong. So anyone who says we have evolved to a higher level and we will not have all that bad stuff going on. So all you have to do to be in this perfect world is hate all those other people who have not evolved to our higher plane. So then it's the same old dynamic. And you also have to submit to the leader of this supposed utopian group. And I've read about so many of them, not just in the obvious ones that are in the news, but in the smaller, less famous ones, which are based on some kind of spirituality. Okay. So, so you're saying as it stands, it's probably unlikely uh, this will just be, it's a relic of our evolution. It'll stick with us. I obviously, I wrote the book in hopes of more people um, not, not needing to do this by being able to create it internally. And I think we have evolved in that. Uh, just a simple example is, you know, when you watch an old movie and every movie has a fist fight, like two guys are in a bar and then one just punches you, like that used to be like a normal thing. <laughs> and now like people would call 911 and like three cop cars would come. <laughs> now people are deluded to think that if you hurt my feelings, that that's aggression, that that's equivalent to violence. So we've gone so far to the other extreme because of those same brain structures that people are so desperate to build conflict and to create drama that even when they have the luxury of safety, that they're deluding themselves into believing that they are oppressed um, because they want to be special and no one can be special every minute. So my point is that you have to manage this urge for specialness in yourself rather than blaming the world for failing to make you special. And I yeah, guess I don't really succeed. I, I don't expect that I'm going to get every single person to, yeah, to do let's, that. Well, let's talk about some of the things we can actually do for ourselves. That'd be great. Sure. So first I talk about a distinction between junk status and healthy status. 
So healthy status, I just call it putting yourself up without putting others down. Now, it's not easy to put yourself up for a number of reasons. One of them is because you have old neural pathways that put you down. And the other is because you don't really want to put yourself up. You're told that that's rude and arrogant and you want other people to put, your, to put you up. So we're always waiting for the world to put, us, to put us up. And then we resent the world for failing to put us up. So we want applause from the world rather than giving ourselves applause. So I explain that all of the people in human history who have done anything significant, they did not get applause while they were doing it. You know, they mostly got spitballs when they were doing it and they didn't get applause until after they did it, usually after they died. So you have to give this to yourself. And if you're busy taking the shortcut of putting other people down, to give yourself a one-up feeling, then you're not gonna do it. So you have to give your one, yourself a one-up feeling by actually doing something you're proud of. And if you set the bar too high, then you're not gonna do it. Like, I'm gonna be a rock star, and then you're not gonna be a rock star, and then you're gonna be frustrated, so you're gonna go back to putting other people down. So instead, you have to give yourself small goals that you're proud of and take small steps every day. Excellent. And would a gratitude journal is this, because I know there there's studies that show they're very effective. Is, is that part of this uh, serotonin process? It could be, but the way I hear gratitude used is typically for things that are happening to you by accident, that people often, I'm grateful for puppies and rainbows, but being uh, proud of your own steps is often considered egotistical. And in this community, ego is condemned. And so I think that this condemnation of ego is, is a component of depression, is a path to depression. And so that's why I think that we need to claim our urge for specialness, but be realistic about it rather than delusional, like not go from one extreme to the other. Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so it's almost like you want to be experiencing your, your own success. You want to be sort of, uh, locking in and creating pathways that sort of remind you of your success. Yes, exactly. That these small steps that, um, what the phrase often used is a small win. And that builds a pathway that makes it easier for you to have the feeling of small win without having to just go around and one up everybody around you every minute. So we all know somebody who like has to be in the one up position every minute. And that's not a good path. But also it's not good to be delusional. Like let's say I'm a poker player and I get a, a good hand and I'm happy with that. But that doesn't mean I should be delusional and think I have a, a winning hand when I don't. So that's why it, it, that's why we have two brains, you know, the higher brain and the lower brain and they have to work together. Okay, so small wins. And that's something that we hear about in the business world, you know, keeping momentum going that it's that it's better to have consistency versus you know a, 
an all-nighter to to knock something out and then lose your momentum. Um, what else can we do practically uh, to? And I so our objective here. Let's let's state our objective. I guess our objective is to not fall into the trap of putting people down, but still get the benefits of serotonin and the feel good of serotonin. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So we have to talk about the cortisol side of it. The cortisol is the one down feeling. So why do you have the one down feeling is because of neural pathways built from your past one down feelings. So anytime, anytime you release cortisol, your neurons connect and that makes it easier to turn on cortisol the next time that's designed to promote survival so that if you experience danger that you avoid the danger next time so when you were young um, you had a lot of myelin and so neural pathways were created easily and so whatever gave you that one down feeling when you were young you built big powerful neural pathways that turn on that one down feeling in similar ways. So one person might feel one down about their looks and another person might feel one down about money and another person might feel it toward authority. So everyone has that time that they slide too easily into a one down feeling. And that cortisol does its job. It tells you, do something, do something. And what do you do when you have that cortisol feeling? What many people do is I have to escape this one down feeling by creating a one up feeling. And that's why you may resort to junk status, I call it, or an unhealthy one up feeling. So what would be example of unhealthy one up feeling versus lots of other unhealthy ways to deal with cortisol like all of the addictions. But the addiction to unhealthy uh, status would be putting other people down, uh, you know, diminishing other people to their face with, let's say, sarcastic comments, or I have to win. So if I run 10 miles, but I meet someone who runs 11 miles, then I have to immediately run 12 miles, despite (laughs) maybe I'm taking some pain pills in order to do that. Okay, so yeah, we have uh, the addiction, which which can uh, alleviate the the one down feeling, but also we can we can switch to the one up position. So there's there's multiple ways cortisol, and then um, so the cortisol experience just and I I think I might have experienced earlier today because I saw the market is down when I looked at my uh, portfolio. And I was like, Ugh, had this like yucky feeling in in my body, uh, sort of a sort of a panicky that I had to sort of breathe through and uh, process out of out of my system. Is that the the cortisol experience that we'd be referring Absolutely. to? Absolutely, that's a perfect example of it, and and good response. But um, again, we have to have more variety of responses because, God forbid, you know something worse happens that breathing isn't enough. Gotcha. Okay. And so what um, I'm wondering about for people that have had a bunch of things go wrong all at once and breathing is not, a, not enough, um, you know, because I think uh, 
if you if you just look at the last year, there's probably a large percentage of the world that has a bunch of things going on. Like maybe they lost their job and the pandemic and the natural disaster all on the same week. So um, what would be, because we want this to sort of become a, something we're not thinking about, but something we just sort of naturally do like a new habit. Um, so how do you recommend sort of people train, train this to become a, what is it, unconsciously competent? Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so first, I have to say that I have another whole book about that, which is called Tame Your Anxiety, Wiring Your Brain for Happiness. Um, but it, the cortisol piece is also briefly um, uh, managed in, in the new book, Status Games. So the other thing I want to say in regard to this year is do not watch the news. <laughs> the news is designed to focus your attention on the worst possible interpretation of the worst thing that's going on. Another thing, I, I like when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I think about is the worst thing that happened to me yesterday. And if I wake up in the middle of the night, then it's even worse because your defenses are even lower in the middle of the night. So to explain this, if you are a caveman and you wake up in the morning and you come out of your cave, what's the first thing you have to do is like look around, make sure there's no predators around. Okay. So while you're sleeping, you have no defenses, you're defenseless. And then as your brain revs up and activates the circuits that make you who you are, you're like, okay, the first thing I have to do is manage potential, any potential immediate threat. What immediate threat is there? If my life is actually safe and my needs are actually met, then the one thing that hurt my feelings yesterday could be like the only threat that my brain could find. And that like drops into the threat slot you know, it's, and then okay. I actively know that that's what I did. Gotcha. So something you, you're searching for something to fill that slot. Uh, and it could be the, the slightest little thing. Yeah. And so what happens if you don't fill the slot? Oh, you just do that. Your brain automatically goes there. So then you have to notice like, oh, so my brain is telling me to worry about that, but now I can choose whether I actually worry about it, you know? Okay. So, um, but to, to address your larger question about what to do when you're actually worried and maybe you actually have decided that you have a reason to worry. So I have a three-step process in Tame Your Anxiety. So you put a timer on for 60 seconds and that's when you do this conscious scan of like, what am I worried about? Because often like once your cortisol turns on, you know, and even doctors tell you you're supposed to have cortisol in the morning, it gets you going, but they ignore the link between the cortisol and the negative thoughts. So mm -hmm. when a monkey wakes up in the morning, it's hungry. It has to find food. If it doesn't find food, it will starve. So cortisol is that message that says, get going, do what you need to do meet your needs, relieve threats. And then you get to define that. You get to define your needs and define your threats. So if you don't consciously do that, you're gonna use the circuits built from past experience. So you wanna give yourself time to consciously des decide, like, why am I feeling threatened? What's the biggest threat? 
and to, to um, am I just doing this on automatic? What what threat will I consciously? What's my best guess as to what really triggered this cortisol? And a lot of my work is about understanding the cortisol circuits of your past so you know why you slide so easily into certain threatened feelings. And the title of that chapter is called Why It's Always High School in Your Brain. So <laughs> high, <laughs> high school is when we wire in these threatened feelings that then we waste our lives repeating. <laughs> You mentioned about the myelin in the development and, and it was easier to form the patterns. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if there's any biohacking uh, because I know we have still some plasticity in the brain. We, we can rewire, rewire our brain and make new habits. Are there any diets or supplements that make that easier to sort of remyelinate or recircuit? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking like fish oil or something like that. Um, uh... Uh, yeah, yeah, well, you know what? I have this fish oil in the refrigerator and I'll take it as soon as we finish. Um, uh, so I, I only have, I, I have believe in, I don't know. Um, I do not think so because we need the myelin just to repair the circuits we have. And if we had a way to repair these circuits, we would be doing it, you know? So I don't think so. So this whole idea that we have neuroplasticity throughout life, it's true, but it has been overhyped because it allows coaches and, um, you know, uh, various magical cure-all people to help sell this. So they're using this one study that shows that we grow, grow new neurons, but those new neurons are not connected to anything. So the way I use it is if you distinguish, if you were trying to travel through the Amazon forest and you had a choice between a highway or slashing a new trail with a machete, you would take the highway because it's so hard to slash a trail with a machete. But then you would discover that the highway goes to a yucky city that you don't really want to be in. So you get out your machete and you slash a trail to some beautiful spot in the jungle. But then the next day, the trail is grown over and it's just as hard and it's so much work to slash a new trail in the jungle. And that's what it's like to try to build a new pathway in your brain. But once you understand why it's hard and why it's valuable, then you're willing to put in the effort. So it will always be hard and you will never have more than a little dirt trail. But if you slash the same <laughs> path, if you slash the same path every day, a trail will establish and it will not be as big as the big highway, but it will be enough for you to be able to make the better choice on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. That's reminding me of the book, 10% Happier, where, where he's saying, you know, it, it did make a difference, but uh, it's, it's that I'm 10% happier. So it's like, it could be dramatic uh, on occasion, but, <laughs> but it's not like you're, you're totally changed. Okay, that's a good- uh, Yeah, and if you are always running after some utopian dramatic changes, you may not do the things that will make you 10% happier, which will aggregate if you keep doing that. Yeah, if you keep, if you chop a new path in a different direction every day, it's not going to add up. Gotcha. Uh, this seems like a, perhaps we could talk about you. You mentioned in your book 
reading about early explorers. Uh, and I, I had a little note to ask you about that um, because you say the, the journals of early explorers and adventurers are, are interesting to read because they go against, uh, as we were talking about earlier, the prevailing wisdom. Maybe you could talk about your experience of uh, what you learned by reading the, because we were talking about the jungle, what you learned from these journals of explorers. Yeah. Yeah, so whenever I travel somewhere, I look for the history of that place. And because I know that academics just report whatever fits the popular theory, I, I look for books that have not been mediated by some main institution, which is like, and so the original journals of explorers and missionaries. Now you could say that, you know, missionaries are biased and explorers are biased. Yes, but it's just a different bias from <laughs> what you're already getting. What I learned from them is that there is a lot of conflict in these um, ancient societies, tribal societies, um, not just conflict with the neighbors, but conflict within the society. So let's say the head man dominates and then there's some lower level people that try to take over and there's conflict with them. And there is um, a horrendous amount of regulations that taboos and um, uh, fears, super fears of the supernatural. I'll, I'll just give you two examples. So my cult, because you know, it's so, it's so risky to talk about these things. So I'll use my own culture, Sicilians. So Sicilians have uh, this historical um, uh, culture about the evil eye, that um, if I get sick, it's because you gave me the evil eye. If mm. my child got sick, it's because my neighbor gave them the evil eye because I bought my child a beautiful dress and they're jealous of the beautiful dress. So they gave you. So that would be one example that when you live within this culture, that you are forced into accepting these um, very limiting uh, metaphysical beliefs. They didn't have nearly the freedom of thought that we have today. But um, so I made a number of trips about uh, to Hawaii. And so I kept going back to some of the original writing of, of the encounter with Hawaiians. And once again, we're very much expected to idealize them and see them as a superior culture and the white man is bad. And I know that very well after having spent 25 years in academia, but there's a lot written and it's, it's all in the public record about what was really going on in Hawaiian culture at the time of the encounter. And it was horrific, I will just say. <laughs> yeah, the same, uh, the same sort of kings warring against each other and stuff that you would, you would find in other places. Well, not only that, so there was a death penalty for everything. So okay. every, every time you violated one of these many regulations is the death penalty. So one of the regulations was men and women are not allowed to eat together. So there was a very severe separation of the sexes. And frankly, the reason I got into it, and this is in the book, men were always pimping out their women in order to um, earn trinkets for, for the supposedly, you know, for the good of the family. Um, they didn't use the word pimping out. 
Um, so you can make it a <laughs> you can make it a free love thing, which is what academics historically have done. But I don't choose to see it that way. And um, men and women were not allowed to eat together, and women were not allowed to eat all the good foods. And if you ate with a woman or allowed a woman to eat with you, it was the death penalty for both the man and the woman. Now here's another example. You hear about free love. Oh yeah, you were allowed to have sex with anyone. But if you weren't married to them, the child was just murdered at birth. So you see how we get such a biased picture of what was mm -hmm. going on. Yeah, interesting. Um... So the way I learned about this, there's a book called Hawaiian Antiquities, which is available for free on Google Books. And antiquities was a more historical word, meaning, you know, what went on in ancient times. Um, so this, when, um, when Western cultures first contacted the Hawaiians, which they did um, in order to replenish their ships with food and nutrition on the way to China. So when they first went there, the Hawaiians did not have written language, but missionaries quickly came and taught them. So the first people in Hawaii who learned written language wrote down their historical stories. And that's what I was interested in. It's the same with the Greeks and the Chinese that the first people who learned writing wrote down the historical stories and traditions. And so I was interested in well, what did they have to say? And it was all about war and about all of these taboos. And by the way, our word taboo comes from the Polynesian language, which was the language in Hawaii. Interesting. Uh, taboo sounds a lot like tattoo. I wonder if there's any uh, similar etymology there. Yes, actually, tattoo was also an ancient Polynesian tradition that, um, yeah. That I, re I remember reading the, the voyage of Captain Cook uh, and they, I don't know if it's Tahiti or Hawaii, but the talking about the free love, like we just showed up and they wanted to have sex with us, like amazing. Let's yes, <laughs> thank you, exactly. So um, that I, I, I am, was like really got into following Captain Cook uh, because I went to Tahiti. And so I started reading about it and one thing led to another. And I went to the Captain Cook places in Australia and in um, the UK. So um, I, I just, this is what makes it fun. For, it gives me excuse to travel. Um, but yes, that was, uh, this is in the book status games that when I had an opportunity to go to Tahiti and I heard that when the sailors showed up in Tahiti that girls rode out to the boats and climbed aboard and said, hello sailor. And uh, you can imagine in those days, like you could not even mention sex in public. So they always discuss this in a very euphemistic way, but I was really interested in finding out what went on. So I did a lot of research on that. And, and what did you discover? Um, this is what I said that um, the, when the women had an interlude with a sailor that the sailors would give them a nail. And this quickly became 
the, the practice and the established expectation. So the sailors always came prepared with a nail and the girls got the nail and they went home satisfied. Everybody was satisfied with the transaction. And so it was clear that the fathers and the brothers of these girls sent them out to get the nails because metal did not exist in those cultures and that's what they wanted. And the sailors used up so many nails that the boats started to fall apart. Wow. Um, but the deeper situation was why were the girls so ready to interact in this way? And it's because that was already part of their culture. Um, you know, everyone's heard this cliche about if you visit an Eskimo, that Eskimo gives you their wife for the night. So women were already um, trained to accept that not only you subordinate to your husband, but you subordinate to anyone that your husband tells you to. Or else you get uh, killed. Pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so you have no choice. So you take pride in like, this is my job and I'm going to do it well. That's mm -hmm. human nature. Interesting. Um, where, does, where does testosterone fit in with uh, this serotonin cortisol uh, continuum? Partly I'm asking because uh, my understanding is that testosterone sort of across the board is at an all-time low and testosterone is uh, like related to confidence and the one-up position and things like that. Can, can you talk about where testosterone fits in? Sure. Um, in an earlier book I wrote called The Science of Positivity, I talk about people have heard of like fight or flight, but it's then they hear about fight, flight, or freeze, but then there's fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. So fawn is when you put yourself in the one down position. Mm -hmm. So in the, if you put yourself in the one down position in the animal world, this is a well-established interaction. And what it says is, I'm not going to challenge you for the dominant spot and therefore you don't need to bite me, okay? So um, we humans might call this equality because if you and I say, I'm not gonna try to dominate you and then you reciprocate by not trying to dominate me, that's friendship, you know? We agree that even though in, in the rest of the world, we're always, trying to improve our social dominance, that I'm not going to try to improve my dominance at your expense. That's friendship. And the more we can broaden that, the more friendship and cooperation we have in our lives, but it's at the expense of constantly restraining that natural urge to dominate. So that's one whole answer, but that's not really the testosterone piece. So testosterone has a very specific job. So I explained that one up is serotonin, one down is cortisol. Testosterone is different. Testosterone is what we would call it in verbal brain, I'm going to fight back. So in the animal world, animals rarely fight the alpha. It's either, I think I can win, so I... I give a dominance gesture, which every species knows what is the dominance gesture in their species. I give a dominance gesture and you look at me and you say, whoa, she's, she's stronger than me. I'm not going to challenge her. I'm going to 
give a submission gesture and that triggers your cortisol and you submit. So it's very rare that two animals both think, I'm not going to submit, I'm stronger than her. I'm not going to submit, I'm stronger than her. So they both think they can win. And in the animal world, you only challenge when you think you can win. And then usually one submits. So it's only when both of them are convinced they can win that they actually fight. And that's the serotonin moment. Oh, I said it wrong. That's the testosterone moment. So testosterone is, I'm willing to fight over this. And to go back to the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. So when a gazelle sees a lion, gazelle is not going to fight the lion because it's definitely going to lose. Mm -hmm. So very rarely do animals fight the lion. But there's a certain point at which they fight. And usually it has to do with if you're young or on the line, because the whole point of natural selection and our inner mammal is the reproduction of your genes. So if, you're, if your children, if your children survive, if you, let's say, if I risk my life for my baby, that wouldn't make sense because when I'm dead, my baby's gonna die. But there are times when you make this judgment of when you're actually going to put your life, when, when I say my baby's going to die, that's like in the state of nature that your baby would die without. Yep. So we're designed to, to weigh and judge, like when am I going to put my life on the line and fight that lion because it actually promotes the survival of my genes. And when you've come to that conclusion that this is a moment worth fighting, the modern example would be, I'm gonna tell my boss no, and then I might get fired and my kids might starve. So that doesn't help. So you're making that decision. Most of the time you're gonna shut up and not fight with your boss. But when you make that decision, I'm gonna fight with my boss, that's testosterone. And so I'm imagining if you, stand up to your boss or fight with them and it all works out or maybe they like actually start to respect you uh or something or you, you know you you speak speak your truth and then people are like oh well he's gonna he's gonna be the truth teller that would create a serotonin response because you put yourself as now one up because you've if it works that way but alternatively people may say oh what an asshole they're just complaining about nothing and then you may get written up by HR, you know, right. it depends on the facts of the case. So it could, it could give you a serotonin one up or one down, depending. Okay. Um, okay, cool. So yeah, so we've, we've covered a lot of these um, building blocks, like the actual chemicals and the myelin and the testosterone. Well, there was one more compound I wanted to ask you about uh, because it's popular um, microdosing with psychedelics. Does that uh, how does that influence, uh, if it does, the the serotonin or cortisol uh, dynamic? Any so my work, my work is about the understanding the natural function of these chemicals so that we can find a healthy way to make peace with our inner mammal and give your inner mammal that, the illusion that it's having what the mammal wants while still um, doing things that are safe and healthy in the modern world. So with microdosing, I don't see any natural 
function other than escape. So um, it's just not my thing. Gotcha. Okay, I didn't know if it if it also stimulated serotonin or uh, if it uh, affected those levels at all or um... or oxytocin. I think people may be saying oxytocin. I don't oh, know what it? people are saying, but I feel that the people who are promoting it are are quite biased and they're promoters. And because it's now currently the cool thing, uh, scientists who embrace this get attention. Mm. And then people who are actively involved in it, the more involved they get, the more they caution others. And then it becomes a sort of a one-up thing is that you should, it's only safe to do with a shaman. And my shaman is better than your shaman. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so we're back to, back to the one-upping <laughs> instinct. Um, okay, cool. I think the only other thing that we, we had talked about that we wanted to touch on was how do we use this information in parenting? Yes, so this is a challenge, and I'm, I'm so happy that people like you can get this information while your kids are still young, because uh, my kids had grown up and left home before I discovered any of this to my great regret. Um, however, I know how hard it is. Um, there's just no easy answer. And I'm just coming back from a visit with my grandson who is so adorable that I just want to submit to his every whim. As much <laughs> as I know that it's not healthy, and I'm proud of my children for, you know, on the one hand, um, they're struggling not to submit to their child's every whim because they know it's unhealthy. And then it's like, but is this the right issue to battle over? You know, and if everything becomes a battle, then your home is unpleasant. So, I, so first I want to acknowledge that there is no easy answer. Um, so I, I'll just um, maybe quote something from, so the pendulum goes from one extreme to the other. So I'm quoting from, I'm just writing a new book now. Um, the Rousseauian worldview is that children are born perfect and society messes them up. So everyone has been indoctrinated because this philosophy has become embedded into everything we do. And so now we've had this simplistic belief that children are wise. And if you just let them run wild, they'll always do what's the good thing. And that doesn't work out well for you, that you should always blame society, blame the teacher, blame the rules, blame authority, and let the kid continue to run wild. Now, if you do this, your child will end up by the end of its mile in years with a lot of bad habits, which we can easily name, but let's just say that they will just go and grab another child's toy and expect to get away with it. They become they don't... tyrants, sort of. Yeah, exactly, tyrannical. And then when that, that, when, then when that gets a bad result, they'll scream. And, and sadly for that child, often, Teachers will tolerate this kind of crap, but other kids won't. And so they'll be shunned by their peers, which is sad, sad for the child. And the child will not even understand why they're being shunned by their peers. So they will repeat those attention-getting behaviors. And I'm not saying attention-getting in a negative way, because that's the whole point of the book, is that 
attention seeking is natural, but we it's hard to learn healthy ways to do it. And the analogy I use is that in kindergarten, one child is superstar of the week every week. And that teaches you that you have to tolerate all the other weeks where you're not superstar of the week. <laughs> and um, so that's what we really have to teach our kids is how to feel good during the week that you're not superstar of the week. You know, like when your child has that first um, uh, team sport and they have that moment of accomplishment, but then they have to feel good both when they fail and when the other child has the moment of accomplishment. So that's really the challenge. And as we know the cliche now, telling the child what a winner they are, what a winner they're gonna be is, is not really, I think it's not the best thing because then it's just feeding a delusion. So, uh, but one more thing I wanted to get into, if you feed this delusion and if the child myelinates bad habits, that the current response is to diagnose them with a disorder and to drug them. And this is the tragedy that mm. I'm you know, wanting to focus on in my next couple of books. Gotcha. Yeah. And so you're talking about, we have this opportunity because they're plastic, they're, they're in their pre-mile, like we can as parents somewhat direct uh, their habits and things like that. Um, of course, there's all kinds of influences. Uh, and I think I heard you mention the, uh, instead of telling them how great they're going to be, you're, you're praising the effort. Uh, that's the, um, the, the growth mindset, Carol Dweck's stuff, where you, where you tell your kids like, wow, you had a great result because you've been consistently practicing that thing um, that you're doing and giving them the one-up feeling for, like you were talking about earlier with adults, just the, the effort they're putting in, the small wins, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, short answer, yes. But um, uh, there's also this concept of natural consequences that the small win is its own reward. And if the parent gets too involved and then they're doing it to please the parent rather than to enjoy the win. So one view of parenting is to set up situations where they can have the small win rather than over-interpreting it for them. You know, and I'll just give you this simple example. Um, my grandson, who's 11 months old, just moved into a house with a staircase, with, with two stairs, and it's impossible to block the stairs. So he has to learn to navigate the stairs, and he can't even walk yet. So I was talking to my daughter about sitting there and letting him learn to feel the effect of gravity, like, in, on his body. And... Like when you're going down, like when he loses control of his body, like imagine being a baby where your head is so much heavier than the rest of your body. You can't really control it. It's, it's hard. You don't want to give the child infinite room to do its own thing because it'll break its head. Long story short. So we finally, we, we had taught him yet to go down, but he finally learned to go up the stair um, safely himself. And every time he did it, the first few times, I'm like, yay, you did it. But I swear the kid did not even realize he did it. He was just on to the next thing. He was climbing that stair to get the toy in front of him. And he didn't even stop just to cognitively think, 
oh, I did a new thing. I am powerful. Yay me. No, he didn't think that way. That sort of, it was just that he just built confidence that I can go after something safely. And that's what I think is the good thing. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned natural consequences. Uh, one, so one thing that I, and maybe, maybe this is just like me asking another parent for advice, but it's hard for me to figure out a natural consequence sometimes. Like, let's say they want to eat a bunch of candy. Well, the natural consequence is like way down the line and they're not going to connect cavities with eating the candy. Or sometimes it seems like with, you know, timeouts or something, it's, it's not perfectly connected with the behavior itself. So how do you, how do you figure out a good natural consequence? That's absolutely true. Absolutely, absolutely. It's so rare that we can actually allow for natural consequences. So it's not, it's not a complete natural, it's not a complete parenting strategy the way many people suggest. And even if you say, oh, if you eat those candy bars, you're going to get sick. They won't even necessarily. Like, I'll take that, yeah, take yeah, that risk. Not, yeah, <laughs> so um, the answer to this I learned this recently by studying dolphin training. Um, so first, this comes from like dog training, horse training. It's now being applied to humans. And many parents get angry at like, how dare you treat my child like a dog? Um, but it was first used on um, children with autism. And even those parents got angry about it. Um, but I learned that the person who discovered this was um, a dolphin trainer. So I, I read her book about how she discovered it. So um, you, when you want to teach a dolphin to do flips in the air, so when you wanna teach any animal a trick, you give them a reward, but you can't say, okay, spin in a circle and then I'll give you a reward because they don't know what it is to spin in a circle. This is what a hundred years ago, B.F. Skinner did this with pigeons. Every time the pigeon turned its head in that direction, he gave it a treat. And then it just gave it enough treats that the pigeon turned in a whole circle. And then he um, only gave it one treat for the whole circle. So I'm not saying you gotta uh, use a lot of treats. I'm saying you break the behavior you want into small chunks. And then the reward is your attention. So what parents often do is the kid gets attention when they do something bad, but you ignore them when they do something good. So that it's okay. A lot of the time, you know, if a child is playing calmly, you ignore them. But if you're trying to break, break a bad behavior, you choose an alternative behavior that you would like to train to substitute. Then you break it into small chunks and you reward the small chunks, you reward it hopefully with positive attention. But if it's an emergency, you may have to reward it with junk food, you know, uh, in, in a case of a true emergency. So an example would be, um, you know, if a child is having, let, let's use that example of they want that junk food and you want to give them healthy food. So um, one example would be, um, when they want that junk food, you're offering an alternative food that has a, some positive association in their mind. 
Now, the junk food has a positive association for two reasons. One is that our brain is naturally looking for um, fat and sugar because of the yep. natural value. But the other is a learned positive association. Like maybe the junk food has a scarcity value. Like your kid doesn't want the toys that it has. It wants whatever thing it's not supposed to touch. Yeah. So something with scarcity value that you could give it when, when you're trying to teach a new behavior and break it down into small enough chunks that they can understand. Cool. Uh, yeah, and I'm also just, just realizing that uh, I could probably learn more about being uh, just, just sort of the strategies of behavior and parenting and that it's a skill that I could uh, improve. <laughs> which, uh, you know, so many of these things we think, oh, well, I'm, I'm either naturally a good parent or not, but there's a lot of element of trainable skill acquisition here as well. Yeah, but it's so hard. I don't want to, you know, undermine how hard it is because I acknowledge how hard parenting is. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they'll, like, no matter how good you are, you'll screw them up one way or another, so. <laughs> uh, we, had a, we had a friend staying with us and, um, He's not a parent, but he he would say funny little things like when our kids would fight, he would be like, oh, there's 10 years of therapy. <laughs> you know, like no matter what you do, there's going to be, uh, you're going to have to process it out as an adult. <laughs> well, another huge element to this that's in all my books is mirror neurons. So your kids are going to basically mirror what they observe. And the brain is designed with mirror neurons to mirror when they see another individual get a reward or suffer a consequence. And this has been misinterpreted in the fashionable press as empathy. It's not the same as empathy because if a monkey sees another monkey get a reward, then it's like, whoa, how can I get that? If it sees another monkey get a shock, it's like, whoa, how can I avoid that shock? So, that's what your brain is designed to seek rewards and avoid pain. So when you see another monkey figure out how to get a reward, it actually activates the same neural pathways. So if bottom line is, if you tell your child to eat kale, but you get excited about eating a Mars bar, and they see you getting excited about eating the Mars bar, they're going to learn that. So lead by example. Exactly. <laughs> Amazing. And they're uh, going to learn more from your example than they're going to learn from your, your words. But again, um, constructing situations where they have an opportunity to learn the rewards of effort from, from having an opportunity where the situation is small enough that they can succeed and the reward is meaningful to them. And that is such a fun moment as a parent when you can, uh, my son was just, um, he just figured out how to move himself on the swing after a lot of frustration of just like wiggling around on it. And then when he finally got a little movement, it was like, oh my gosh, I did something. So <laughs> it's very gratifying to, uh, you know, shepherd them through that process. Uh, yes, and it's so tempting to want to help them and rescue them from <laughs> their frustration. That's the real thing. And low frustration tolerance, LFT, 
is something I learned a lot about from Albert Ellis a long time ago. And low frustration tolerance is, um, oh, I'm just writing about this. Um, so monkeys, they do not get to eat a nut unless they crack it open themselves. And it takes years of effort to learn how to crack open a monkey. And they deal with a lot of frustration until then. And nobody gives a monkey a nut. Nobody cracks your nuts open for you in the monkey world. Some monkeys never learn and they go without protein and they don't build um, strength and they don't reproduce their genes. So that's natural consequences writ large. Wow, interesting. Yeah, and I would say adults have a lot of this. Uh, I see adults with this low frustration tolerance uh, continuing on from their childhood. Yes, and then we want to give our children what we want. So if you see your child struggling to do something, so you know one urge is to rescue them and do it for them. And then there are, of course, other parents stuck in the really unhealthy, old-fashioned view of even bad-mouthing the child for failing, which is, adds to their frustration, which is extremely unhealthy, of course. Mm, yeah. And then we have people who are, um, uh, yeah, that when you fail, they will remind you of that failure forever. So you don't want to try because you'll be humiliated for failing. So giving them permission to fail is valuable. Great. Permission to fail. Okay. But not such extreme failure. Like, you know, if you're on the baseball team and you don't make any effort and then you fail and then you say, don't worry, you're better than those kids anyway. You know, that's rationalizing low effort. So it's always hard to strike that in between balance. Okay. So I'm, what I might take away is uh, it's a hard job and I, I'll, I'll, figure it out, do the best I can. <laughs> uh, Loretta. And enjoy it. And then you're challenged to enjoy right. it. <laughs> yes. Uh, great. I took, I took a lot of notes during this interview. That's always a good sign. Um, anything else that we haven't touched on that you want to make sure to note? Um, just the idea that social comparison is going on all the time in your own brain and you are creating it and you feel like other people are judging you because you're actually doing the judging. They may be judging too, but you are doing the judging because you want to be in the one-up position, but you can't admit that to yourself. So you're blaming them for judging you and putting you down. So therefore, once you realize that you are doing this, you are playing the status game as much as anybody else. Stop pointing the finger at others and it's such a relief. It actually feels good because once you see that you are playing the status game, then you realize that nobody's forcing it on you and you can play it however you want. Mm, I can imagine that would bring a sense of, sense of peace. You said relief, but yeah, um, which is a powerful place to, to work from. Mm. Fantastic. Where can, where can people find uh, this book and the rest of your work? So my website is innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And it has all the books. And this book is, you'll see it right there. And it's for sale in all the usual places. Yeah. And congrats and, again and on your... A free, free, the first chapter is free on my website. Oh, great. And I was going to say, uh, congrats on, you know, growing growing your readership now you're a prolific 
uh, output of books. Uh, so it's uh, it's great to see, you know, you've got the momentum now. Thank you, thank you. And congrats on your young family and for continuing to podcast for all this time. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> all right. Okay.